let me hop right into the text today, and I'm going to do this verse by verse. The first two ver first verse says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. I want to talk first about who is the author of the book of James. And obviously, if you believe even the first words out of it, you believe it's a man named James. If you study through the New Testament, for instance, if you go on BibleGateway.com and you decide to just do a search Matthew through Revelation with the name James, you're going to get probably four different individuals who pop up. As I look at those four, and as generally most commentators and theologians look at them, the bulk of them will say, we think it's most likely a gentleman named James, who was the brother of Jesus. And I'm going to take that position, and I'm going to flesh that out just a little bit for you. And I'm going to tell you some scriptures that I looked at it as I was studying. I won't read all of them, but I'm going to mention them. And I might even put them in a note saying, hey, if you really want to get an understanding of the New Testament, all these dynamics, here's what I think was going on. Who is the author? Most likely, he's a brother of Jesus who was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was walking this earth. You'll see a man named James mentioned in Matthew chapter 13, Mark 3, Mark 6. And it appears to me that James had a brother named Jude, who was also a New Testament author. It seems to me that he became a follower of Jesus after Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 mentioned that the Lord appeared to James. Third, it appears to me, and I think as we've studied through Galatians, you would see this. It appears that after James became a follower of Jesus, he became a leader. In fact, he was described as an elder of the church in Jerusalem. And in this issues of what do we do with Jews and Gentiles, if I can use the phrase, he was more conservative. You'll read about him in Acts 12, Acts 21. You're going to read about him in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. And he seems to be one of those gentlemen who provides stability and thinks through things slowly and is in some ways considered more conservative. But when the rubber finally meets the road, when the church finally has to say, we've got to figure out what do we do with these complicated matters, it's James in Acts chapter 15 who's the game changer who takes what he's hearing and he's listening to God, he solidifies it down and he starts to speak and everyone nods their head and says, yeah, that's how we need to handle it. Now, I want to notice a couple of things that are just real practical about this. As James introduced himself, he introduced himself as a servant, some translations will say a slave, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's something real practical. If I am right, and many commentators are right, with this idea that the James we're reading about who wrote this book was the brother of Jesus, if he really wanted to gain traction, this is the point that he could introduce that in. He could say, hey, when I was sitting around with my brother, this is what he said. Start name dropping and try to use relationships to gather power. Another thing he could have done, if we're reading this situation right, that he wasn't a believer until after the resurrection, and then he's made a real miraculous change in life, he could use drama to accentuate his story. What I'm seeing is James from the get-go. Make sure that we know where he really stands, and he's just a servant. He doesn't need to drop names. He doesn't need to use drama. 
He navigates well by kind of pushing away from the natural power games. He's just simply a servant. He writes, and, it's, and in my translation, he writes, writes, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Some translations will say scattered, some will say dispersed. And if you get into the Greek, this is where this term diaspora actually starts to originate. These are the people who are scattered. They become diaspora. Now, I'm going to go a little deeper, because I think when James uses that term, 12 tribes, he knows as he's writing that he's writing to people that have a complicated history, and in just a few words, he can make them go pause and think and live really deep. If you know the history of the Israelite people, there were 12 tribes. They formed into one nation underneath the kingship of Saul, David, and Solomon, then after King Solomon, they split in two. The northern ten tribes called themselves Israel. The southern two, Judah and Benjamin, called themselves Judah. And you have a long-running history and stories of, through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. In 2 Kings 17, 722 B.C., the ten northern tribes are conquered by Assyria, and they go into captivity. If you try to find where they ended up, you're never going to get them coming back and taking over the land again. But here's a couple of things that happen. Some of them return and they intermarry with Babylonian refugees. They become Samaritans. Some of them in 2 Chronicles 30 verse 31 kind of get a little bit of traction and come back and intermarry in Judah and Benjamin. So they seem to have, you know, a Israel scattered. They're intermarrying. They have some identity, but it's shifting and changing. In fact, sometimes it shifts and changes so much they're hardly recognizable. Judah, the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the nation of Judah, they fall to the Babylonian in 587. And if you want to read it, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you've got this long period of dispersion, where sometimes they're dominated by the Persians, sometimes by the Greeks, and in the day of Jesus, day of Paul, the day of James, they're dominated by the Romans. As the time comes today that we're talking about, what's James writing to? He's writing to a group of people who are scattered around the world. They've held on to Old Testament law and culture, but they've become different. They don't speak the traditional Hebrew. They speak Aramaic, or they speak Greek, or they speak Latin. They're not polygamous largely, they're monogamous, they're not farmers, they're middle-class entrepreneurs. Saying this, James is writing, and he appeals to an old, complex, and painful history from the very beginning of this letter. Now, I've given you a little bit of a brief Bible history. Some of you might be dozing out. You might be going, well, why does that matter? I think our lives and our history are complicated, too. They're very complicated. Sometimes they're very painful. And I predict, and it's dangerous to make predictions about the future, but if we're going to see what many expect of one to two years in which life is never what it was two years before, and some ups and downs, a lot of unpredictability, a lot of trial and error, we are going to live through a very complicated season, too. It's going to be very painful. And we ought to even somehow come back and say, well, let's understand our history. 
going to give you a summary of North Dakota, and these are the people I'm talking to, and some of you that are listening from other places. If you read the history of North Dakota, it starts with Native Americans, but it's a history of great movements and conflict. It's not always peaceful and stable. From the 1890s to roughly the 1920s in North Dakota, there's this tremendous surge of immigrants coming from Europe, and many of them came largely as refugees, the people who had no other options but to get on a boat and try the plains. When they arrived here, if you read through the history of North Dakota, they struggled to assimilate into an American world that was English. The English newspapers did not outsell the German ones in North Dakota until the 1930s. I've twice in my six months here, or five months here, walked through old graveyards. And when I walk through old graveyards in North Dakota, and I look at what's written on the tombstone, I don't get till the 1930s before I start seeing more English than I see German or Scandinavian languages. It seemed to me that the very nature of the Northern Plains created a slow assimilation. The Dust Bowl comes in the 1930s and the Depression, and North Dakota history came to terms with the Homestead Act did make this situation sustainable. Lots of people left, and you had about an 80-year stagnation. At least a stagnation of population, let me say that. Now, I'm going to give you the last 15 years of history and talking about diaspora people and how we might relate to this phrase when these 12 tribes are dispersed. Until about one month ago, North Dakota economy was humming. It was moving better than probably about any place in the country. You wonder who are all these new people that are coming because the population's rapidly growing. Well, if you pick up the trip and you look at last week in crime, you can find a lot of them. But that's not the whole story. The biggest story is young families have been moving to a family-friendly city. And if you start talking to them, a lot of them will say, well, I used to visit my grandma here. And I was living on the East Coast or the West Coast, or maybe I was in Minneapolis or Detroit or Chicago. And I heard a rumor there were jobs, and I wanted to get to some place that felt like home, and I came back. Another story you'll hear is a new wave of immigrants who are much like those that came in the 1890s to the 1920s that came out of hurt and pain just looking for a good opportunity. <coughs> but today, we're in a pandemic where we've had about a month where everything is being torn apart, and we really don't know where we're going. And you're going, I can empathize with a little bit of these experiences of these 12 tribes dispersed, and I can read my own history, and I can see this is somewhat of me. There might be a few of you thinking, well, I can't empathize with any part of this diaspora experience, but let me be real clear about this. If you are a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, if you say he's the Lord of your life, and you're following him, you're trying to be a disciple, if you're living in Western Europe or North America, you're living in a post-Christian world. You don't fit here. You're in exile here. And we can pray and labor for a revival, but we don't fit. As we get into a pandemic, and my guess is we've just gotten started. I saw one article yesterday that said we can't be more than 10% into this. Historically, a pandemic will bring out the best and the worst in us. And I'm going to encourage you to hang on tight. And as we get into James, and I'm going to start in just a moment saying, 
here's what he teaches us. James is going to read like an old man sitting around drinking coffee with his grandkids who tells them proverbs and jokes and short stories and grandchildren listen tight because if you hear this one well, you're going to get through it. You're going to live well. First thing I want us to look at is chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. I guess it's the second, but it's the first in instructions. James says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He starts out, here's what the first things you need to understand is an old man would gather his grandchildren or an older man might gather his adult kids or his nieces and nephews and says, brothers and sisters, he lets us know very quickly the relationship is we're all family here. You're not coming into a place which is a country club or a business, a place with titles or all the trappings of humanity, you're coming into family. And his first words are consider. He doesn't want us to stop thinking. That's not the message that he wants us to stay to dig and ponder and to train our emotions. Consider it joy. Train your emotion to see joy first. And I'm going to use an illustration of my three sons. And I hope I'm not looking, making the older two look bad in saying this, but Maybe I'll refer to my dad. When my dad thought my brothers and I were just had too much energy and were getting into too much mischief, and he really didn't feel like being a harsh disciplinarian, he would just create work for us and send us outside and find something that needed to be done or might be good for our spirits and put us to work. And we found that generally by creating things that forced us to use our hands, we got into less mischief. My son Timothy, when he was about oh, somewhere around five to seven-ish, he was having one of those days where he was just getting into a little bit of trouble. And I didn't really want to discipline him, but I wanted to use his energy for something good. I couldn't think of anything offhand, so we lived on a hill, and I got a backpack, and I stuck some books in it, and I put the backpack on his, on his back and said, Get up the hill. And Timothy took off running up a hill with a backpack that I'm guessing weighed 10 to 20 pounds, got up, came back down, looked at me and smiled and said, that was fun, can I do it again? Now, that was, I'm still giggling because I can see him. He didn't quite take the discipline the way I want. His older brothers would have come back complaining and said, okay, Dad, we'll never do it again. Timothy wanted to do it again. Well, this is what I think... James is saying, he wants us to develop such a spirit that when a trial is put before us, we count it joy. Our emotions are trained for it, and we say, God, that was fun. Can I do it again? Now, remember what these tests of faith produce. They produce one thing. They produce endurance. And again, I'm going to talk a little bit about my son, Timothy. My son, Timothy, and I probably are in the gym, or I guess we're not in the gym now. We're doing something with our body a couple times a week. And there's a phrase, those that are around fitness will say this, well, you can either train hard or you can train long. You can work really intensely or you can work steady for a long period of time. Some will tell you, you can't trade hard. 
You can't train hard if you don't sometimes train long. If you want to be able to lift a lot of weight in one explosion of motion, you sometimes have to do things where you're going for a long period of time to build the endurance to then push in your training at another point. It means that almost everybody has to go for a long walk, a long run, a long swim, a long bike ride. At some point you have to train long, you have to have endurance. Now, we do this spiritually. We're trying to develop endurance so we can make it through long periods of time. And when we do that, we become, James says, the word is mature. Where we've seen a lot of things, we've lived through a lot of things, we've got a lot of categories to see things. And when we've been through a lot, we become mature and we can kind of handle some things. We, we don't get flustered as easy. James says you'll be lacking nothing. And when he says that, I don't think he's talking about lacking of health and wealth. In fact, I think during this pandemic, most of us are going to suffer some loss of health, some loss of finances. But I do believe what we're going to gain is a perspective that's going to be priceless. We're going to rediscover many things we've lost, and we're going to hold on to them tighter than ever. We will lack nothing. Now, what do we first need to do? Chapter, two, chapter 1, verse 5 to 8 says this, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask, who gives all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. First thing you need to do is to ask God for wisdom. That's knowledge that's applied. It's what you learn in books and surfing the internet, and going to class, and hungering and hungering for stuff that is intellectual and its knowledge, and then saying, take it at the next step and say, how do I apply that? Right now, I mentioned this Monday, a lot of us are noticing that we're tired more than we normally are. We look at where we're spending our time, and we're picking up newspapers, and we're going online, and we're watching things on TV, and a lot of it's not necessarily entertainment. It's us trying to figure out what's going on, and we are feeling overwhelmed and confused, and that's okay. We're going to gain wisdom if we're humble enough to know that there's a lot going on here that's bigger than us, and we need more, and our testing is being our faith is being tested and it's developing. And when that happens, if we ask for wisdom, God will be extraordinarily gracious to our requests. He won't resent our request. And sometimes I feel this way. Like, I know there's something that somebody has that they might consider giving to me. And I can't try to develop. Do I have enough nerve to go to a friend or go to a family member and ask something? And I think... Should I ask, are they going to judge me when they find out how depleted I am? And I want you to know, if you're feeling overwhelmed and confused, and you're feeling just a little bit nervous to even go before God and say, God, I'm exhausted, I'm overwhelmed, I'm confused, I feel like an absolute idiot here, please give me your wisdom. Our God is hungry, hungry to hear you, and he will respond with an outpouring of grace and mercy and wisdom. Don't be double-minded. Don't be thinking that if you had somehow could manage it better, you would know. I think this thing when he talks about being double-minded, that's the person who refuses to be humble. 
whose mind is consumed with his own arrogance and thinks, I've got it figured out. Or maybe somebody who may know they don't have it figured out, but they really have no root. They sway like a little tree in the wind. They're easily distracted or easily influenced by the latest new theory. Don't go chasing the latest new theory. Instead, hunger for God's wisdom. And God will give you more than you can possibly imagine. Next, I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 2, not verse 9 to 11. How do we stand? Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with a scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. I've labeled this two sentences, don't let the economy mess with you. That's what a lot of us are feeling right now. Of, oh my, how am I going to pay the bills? And James tells us, the brother in humble circumstance should boast in his exaltation. I think something that we're going to discover right now is if we're God's people and we're listening, where do we get some of our best wisdom? Some of the best wisdom today will come from the poor, from the humble, for those that haven't been able to pay their bills and have learned how to juggle and manage and have learned that God somehow gets me through this. And those people who cons consistently for years before this happened, you would hear them boasting about what God had done. They're the ones who are equipped to deal with this. One of the things that we are rapidly discovering is that if we live in one of the wealthier nations in the world, such as the United States or Canada or Western European nations, and we have arisen to a point where we're middle class or upper middle class, or we might even consider ourselves the wealthy. This coronavirus is showing us that all of those trappings, all of the things that we thought allowed us to manage life well, to have high measures of control rapidly fall apart, were like flowers in the sun. And even I'm going to giggle a little bit, I, I posted a flower, and the reason I had to post it was I woke up this morning with an idea of bringing some flowers from home and having them dried out and contrasting the dried out ones with the fresh ones. And then in my drive over here to get to Ralph's house, I completely forgot about it. I forgot about it. My wife sent me the flower and we posted it. But in some ways, it's my reminder, I can't manage this one. I can't remember everything I'm supposed to remember. I can't keep everything under control. And the rich will find that. The, the trappings of power and control will pass away. And a couple of practical observations I want to say, and this is as an armchair economist and a person who likes reading history in the Old Testament, I have just been stunned that within one month of an economic slowdown, most of the Western European and American, North American economies are in tatters. I really had no idea how vulnerable our economies were. I had no idea how little money was in the savings of not only so many people. Well, I'd probably be a bad one, but not of so many people, but the whole system's had so little. I had no idea that in our big picture economy of Western democracies, it's consumption driven. If you stop consumption for just a week or two, 
Everything's in tatters. That's given me a real pause. And some of these pauses that we're going to have for the next couple of years are ones that are going to really cause us to think and live and choose to be different when we come out of this. And what does that say about the practice of Sabbath and seasons? We can't replicate all of the details that we're told about of Sabbath, but some big picture issues say that God created on six days and rested on the seventh, and he expected his people to come into a similar rhythm. The Old Testament talks about the seasons of life, and if you follow humanity, we have for thousands of years, for our whole existence of humanity until the last few hundred, we have been a created being showing the image of God, but our lifestyle depended upon harvest and planting. It adapted to daylight, it adapted to weather, it would do certain things in certain types of weather and others not, and we had seasons of humanity where we would work really, really long hours, and then we would have seasons where everything forced us to rest. In recent seasons of humanity, we've just become a 24-7 people. Our bodies have suffered, our minds have, our spirits have, and I think we're going to get a reset to be healthier people when we're done. A couple little economic observations, and this, I hope, is wisdom. I will very rarely use an African vernacular in my sermons, but I'm going to use one phrase that's in Luganda. It's the phrase, Amagese Gabaganda, the wisdom of the Baganda. And one of the things that so few people have asked me, they've said, Dave, you know, you've lived overseas, you've seen some things that have been harsh about humanity. Do you have any insight of what we've got coming with this pandemic? And I usually pause because I really have to think deep and hard. I've seen some seasons where a lot of people have died. I've seen some seasons where economies and countries have been shattered. But I've never seen anything quite like this coronavirus. If I'm going to find something similar that's close to my humanity, I'd have to go back to the Spanish flu and just like, did my grandma say anything about this? But I'll quote something about the Ugandan experience that may have relevance. Uganda had a roughly 30-year period of time of chaos when Uganda went from one of the bastions of economic development and education in sub-Saharan Africa to an absolute disaster. And my family had the privilege of serving in Uganda as it was coming out of the disaster and the economy went boom. And I remember in our early years sitting around going, how's this going to work itself out? Who's going to come out of this okay? And I remember a missionary colleague of mine, Greg Carr, made a prediction, and he was dead on. Greg said something to the effect, and he might have been quoting somebody else, but this is what I remember Greg saying. He said, he bet that everybody who held property and had an education by the time the thing was done would come out okay. He bet on holding land and being educated. And when I look back at what happened to Uganda going boom, and developing the middle class. That was basically it, if you had those two things. I've uh, been living in the United States for seven years, and I'm going to joke, I'm calling this Amagese Gabazungu, which in Luganda would mean the wisdom of the white man. Here's what I've learned in the West. If I, I watch how have people responded to chaos, not all of us are going to be able to hold land. 
But if you're wondering what do you need to do today, I'm going to mention three things that are beyond just have faith in Jesus and go to church. Try to build a stable family life. If your family life is chaotic, it's hard to come out. Try to pursue all the education you can get and be as wise and knowledgeable as possible. Go as far as you can along in school, and when you're out of school, keep reading, or if you're an oral learner, keep listening. Keep learning. And then work when you get something in your hand. If God gives you something to do that day, do it to the very best of your ability. And my reflection on who's going to come out of this, if you hang on to old property, if you pursue education, if you invest in your family and try to bring stability, and if when you get something in your hand that's good to do, you do it. I think time will speak well of you. You'll come out of this okay. Last verse I'm going to read is chapter 1, verse 12, which says, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. You will be blessed and rewarded if you can endure this crisis. I uh, know that if you're watching this, in certain locations around the world, the coronavirus is now a very painful experience. It's a very painful memory. In other locations, you're reading about it in the newspaper and you think, yeah, it's probably true, but you don't have any context or you don't know anyone. My wife, Jana, noticed something this week, and probably even as I tell you, she noticed Jana and I's reasoning and patterns being a little bit different. Jana noticed that for the last week, twice a day, she has a friend on Facebook who loses someone from COVID-19, from coronavirus, twice a day, she is going on social media and expressing condolences. That's sober. I uh, generally like to have this habit of expressing happy birthday on social media, and now it's going from I'm going to express daily happy birthday, and I'm going to express frequently I'm sorry for your loss. Saying this, as we express our condolences, we express the mercy of God, there's still something that's a bit encouraging about it. There's a loss, there's something painful, but when we do it, we remember that if we're saying, I'm sorry, to somebody who's lost a family member or a dear friend, who's a believer in Jesus' resurrection, all we're really saying is we recognize that you're going to be separated from your loved one for a season. But we've realized, no, that's not the end of it. Jesus rose from the dead. He promised us new life. We have new life today, and we've got eternal life in the future. And our international network that's saying we're losing people actually kind of build, and that kind of it builds my confidence that we're going to see people again. God promises this crown of life to those that love him. And in the very end, I find it so interesting that James uses this phrase, crown of life, because he's recognizing Jesus is the king of all kings. The one who deserves a crown that is eternal is Jesus himself. And James writes to the people saying, you're going to have to humble yourself, and the humble ones are going to be the ones who bring the great wisdom. 
And when it's all said and done, the most painful things we go through in this life of separation until eternity, here's what we get. We get a crown of life. Jesus of the King of all kings gives us a crown, and we reign with him. I'm going to read a closing prayer. It's brief and short, and I'm going to keep this habit for some time. I do want to encourage you to stay current, live as good neighbors, keep reading the Bible, but also keep reading the oldest parts of Christian history, because I think as we read the oldest parts, we're going to find great insight. I'm going to be reading a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, who in the mystery has established the new covenant of reconciliation, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. Through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.